You are listening to a podcast from The National. How will last week's U.S. elections influence American policy in the Middle East? The Democrats won the House of Representatives, but the Republicans, Donald Trump's party, solidified their control of the Senate. While most congressional politicians in the U.S. tend to run on local and domestic matters, the shape of foreign policy is still likely to change. And Donald Trump's party can no longer claim complete control of a two-branch Congress. This week, we ask a U.S. foreign policy expert how a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives might alter Trump's agenda in the Middle East. Will the U.S. president scale back his involvement in the region? Or is he likely to double down on his anti-Iran policy, as some have suggested? This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr Wesmi. Danielle Pletka is the Senior Vice President for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Her previous role was working at the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, where she has been described as being the point person on the Middle East. I caught up with her at the Abu Dhabi Strategic Debate, and I asked her what effect, if any, the new U.S. Congress will have on Trump's executive powers in the region. So the limitations for Congress in its ability to influence the executive branch, no matter who is in power, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, are are largely structural. In other words, um, the um, House of Representatives uh, obviously has all of the rights and privileges that Congress has, but in order to actually pass legislation, you've got to get it through both the House and Senate, and they have to be the same language or reconciled. So in, from the legislative standpoint, for example, uh, the a, a bill which we believe is going to be introduced by Senator Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's a Democrat, um, uh, on ending the war in Yemen, uh, curtailing U.S. supply and assistance to the coalition fighting there. That's not going to go anywhere because it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to persuade a sufficient number of Republicans to sign on to it. On the other hand, a Democratic House can have an enormous um, nuisance factor. It can do investigations. It's already made uh, commitments to do that. It can um, shine a light on uh, policies of the United States that the executive branch does not wish to defend. It can use uh, the power of the so-called hold, which is a courtesy extended by the executive branch to Congress to interfere with arms sales or assistance programs. Those don't need to be respected, but they certainly, um, but they certainly often are. And so there are there are a lot of ways in which um, uh, the a Democratic House can engage in what what we call in English colloquially uh, ankle biting. Uh, but um, there's not a lot of way in which they can shift foreign policy directly if they are resisted by the president. You said something interesting earlier that some countries in the Middle East are beginning to form camps uh, around Democrats and others around Republicans. Can you tell me what you mean by that and why it's setting a dangerous precedent uh, on how the U.S. conducts its foreign policy? I noticed this. I noticed this, to be fair, beginning with the Obama administration. Uh, the Obama administration came into power with the idea that 
the formula that had been used by the United States for more than half a century in the Middle East was really not effective. It's not that hard to argue with that. Uh, when we look at when we look at the problems that have confronted the world from this region, they remain very serious and and seemingly insoluble. Whether it's the rise of the Salafi jihadi movements, or it's uh, intra-regional conflict, or it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, Iran, we see uh, we see these challenges being quite persistent. And so their thought was, the United States has always operated in the Middle East through this Sunni-led prism. Right, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, to a certain extent, um, uh, uh, Sunni Iraq under Saddam Hussein, and that wasn't working. Let's try the Shiites. Let's have an Iran-led policy um, where we look through Iran to potentially solve the problems. The issue here was that it reflected a failure of understanding of exactly what, what the Islamic Republic of Iran means. It reflected a lack of interest in Shia populations and more of an interest in the regime in Tehran. And you know, while the former policy, a policy that might have been Shia first, could have been successful. If we look at Shia populations who are disgruntled and you think about there was the Shia majority population of Iraq, obviously before Obama's time. There's also the Shia majority population of Bahrain. There's an important Shia constituency in Kuwait. There's an important Shia population in um, in in uh, 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 Lebanon, and uh, and of course there's a very small minority Shia Zaydi Shia population in in Yemen, <laughs> which which with which the Iranians have still managed to cause problems. But we ignored all of them. Instead, everything went through Tehran. And, and so the Obama administration created this formula. The Trump administration came in with the attitude, backed by our former Sunni close friends, saying everything Obama did was wrong. Everything Obama did was a mistake. I remember my first trip to the region in the Trump administration, and I asked, uh, I won't say who, but a very senior, very important leader in the Gulf, what should the United States policy be in his view? And his answer was, do the opposite of everything Obama did. And that's a direct quote. <laughs> so, so in any case, this, this is a rather long way of, of, of explaining that these camps have started to develop. And and. I saw this solidified when um, when I, I sat down and chatted with the Qatari foreign minister um, and said uh, in Washington, and he, I said, "Who are you talking to?" And he said, "Well, we're really talking very uh, very strongly with the State Department about solutions to this problem and resolving the you know intra GCC difficulties." And I said, "And what about the White House?" Ah, well, we talked to them on the phone. He said. Okay, this is not a way to do business. You do not want Qatar and Iran, etc., to belong to the State Department and and uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates to belong to the White House. You do not want further Qatar and Iran, etc., Oman to a certain extent and others to belong to the Democratic Party and for and uh, and and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Egypt and Jordan to belong to the Republican Party. All that means is every four years, potentially even every two years, you have a lot of trouble. Well, a lot of trouble, especially because we've seen the effect of lobby groups that are either affiliated or are funded by countries to have influence in Washington. And we've also seen a pattern where the Obama administration has acted in a certain way uh, favorably towards Iran, whereas George uh, Bush 
and now Trump are kind of playing more of an active role. But you also said that presidents campaign on the idea that they want disengagement in the rest of the world, but we're not seeing that. Uh, we haven't seen that exactly in the same way that we expected. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and what it might mean over the next two years and if Trump gets reelected in 2020. Every president for the last, uh, uh, for recent memory, and certainly since the end of the Cold War, but I would suggest even during the Cold War, has told the American people during the presidential campaign, whether he is a Republican or a Democrat, she, in the case of Hillary Clinton, is a Republican or a Democrat, that it is time to stop focusing on problems abroad and focus on problems at home. And you heard me quote some of the slogans, right? Uh, Obama said, nation building here at home. And um, and Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. And um, George W. Bush said, uh, said we need to be more humble. Um, but what he really meant was we need to have less grand ideas about possibilities overseas and really work on things at home. Uh, this, be, by the way, ironically, being the same man who then who then formed the freedom agenda, which was hardly a humble idea about what to do in the world. But in any case, um, and of course, reality always intrudes on these ideas because the problems of the world are the problems of the United States. And you can't run away, even if you want to turn around and say that the problems of the Middle East are the problems of the Middle East to solve, as indeed President Obama suggested when he ha implicitly um, said that America was going to engage in a pivot to Asia. Well, you know what happens when you pivot. You turn to face somebody else and you give your back to the other one. And of course, the intention was that we would give our back to the Middle East. The Middle East doesn't let you do that. And this is the argument that so many in my world of national security, what I would call liberal internationalists, Democrats, Republicans, believe, which is that, um, you know, which is that America needs to be engaged in the world with a view to what its, um, its interests are, but also with a view to what our morals are. And if those two together can help us articulate a clear goal in places like Yemen, in places like Syria, in places like Israel-Palestine, in places like Iraq, even in places like Iran, we will have a policy that will stop the next president from having to come back. Unfortunately, it's easy for me to say that from a think tank on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington and harder to persuade the president of the United States down the street on Pennsylvania Avenue that that ought to be his policy. I want to get down to specifics. Uh you know, President Trump has can be very aggressive in his rhetoric, but often a lot of his administration and the policies that they implement don't actually match what he says in real life or more likely on Twitter. Iran, are we likely to see any sort of escalation there? And what is what is his end, end game when it comes to Iran? This is a very interesting question, and I think you could get a different answer from every person you ask. Um, it is my view, I think backed up by the president's rhetoric, that the president is very interested in returning to status quo ante in terms of very stringent sanctions on Iran, cutting Iran off essentially from the rest of the world, um, obviously not denying the Iranian people food, medicine, and basic goods, but um, otherwise causing um, economic 
distress uh, inside, which will redound to the discredit of the regime and force them to the table. And here, this is the same strategy that has been employed by all the previous presidents. Now, the, the issue is that I think people think that Donald Trump wants regime change in Iran, even though he's not saying so. I don't think that's true. I think President Trump wants to bring Rouhani or Khamenei to the table, just like he brought Kim Jong-un. And he has said that on repeated occasions. He has a, an almost unshakable faith in the, his power as a negotiator. I'm not quite sure why. His former business colleagues suggest that, in fact, his power as a negotiator is quite slim. But he believes in himself. Be interesting to see whether uh, the Iranians are interested in coming to the table. They have constructed a government that has, in many ways, painted them into a corner. I'm not persuaded that the that the Pazdaran, the IRGC, um, is going to allow anybody to come to the table, even if they want to. One of the aspects of foreign policy making that seems to be or will seem to be unaffected by these uh, recent changes in the midterm elections is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, we have his senior advisor, Jared Kushner, seemingly completely in control and orchestrating uh, the whole uh, solution there. He came up with the federation idea, which we all know didn't go down well. Uh, I'm just wondering, what is the next step there? Will it at all be affected by uh, the Democrats having more power now? <laughs> to paraphrase, to paraphrase a, um, a very, very senior golf uh, leader when asked that question by uh, one of my colleagues, uh, that is not one of my priorities. Uh, I suspect for the, for the Democrats, um, this is not a huge priority. Obviously, there are some who will continue and there are some um, uh, um, loud-mouthed younger new members who may make the cause of Palestine their own. But the reality is that we have a government uh, in the Palestinian Authority that isn't ready for anything, <laughs> not even elections in the Palestinian territories, not even reconciliation with Hamas. The idea that somehow the Palestinian Authority is going to be capable or even has the the breadth and the ability to deliver a, a peace agreement with the Israelis, even if the Israelis were willing, seems to me to be a little far-fetched. You know, the Palestinians are in a very bad place of their own making um, and have made consistently over the decades terrible, terrible choices that have um, left them in a very weak position. And so I don't see this at the forefront of the challenges in the region that anyone wishes to solve, Jared Kushner notwithstanding. You said something earlier that the Democrats are planning some investigations on Trump. I want to know how likely would that affect his administration, his decision making, if at all? And will it, in fact, shed more light on the fact on the uh, erosion of the seat of the president in the United States? That's a great question. I think that the president has shown himself to be enormously thin-skinned, and I think these investigations will definitely have an impact on him. I think they will distract him from whatever serious activities he's engaged in, however limited they may be. 
I think there's no question that his behavior will continue to erode the um, status of the presidency and diminish his coin. And um, the only thing I would say that may mitigate that is that I think the Democrats could go too far. The American people are not terribly interested in, in investigations. It is satisfying to what we call the base. So Donald Trump's base really likes rallies. And he thinks that he does a really good job by keeping his base energized. You don't win elections with your base. You win elections with the people in the middle. The same is true for the Democrats. The Democrat the Democratic base may enjoy investigations. The Democratic base may enjoy more talk about Russia, collusion, the Mueller probe, whatever it is. Um, and they may want their representatives expending all of their time and energy on this. But that's not what the center wants. And so, you know, again, what you see is that the political parties in the United States, much like the political parties in Europe, have lost touch with people. Uh, they are pandering to the extremists, the wings of their uh, of their various political sides, and that leaves a lot of people out. The problem in the United States is more complex because we really have a two-party system. In Europe, you can start up and you can have Macron create a political party and win an election with that just created political party because of the frustration of those people. In America, while that is a possible outcome, it's not a likely outcome because the party machines are so strong, because their, their familiarity with the political process is so great, and because their access to information and to money is so huge. So that means that the future is hard to predict um, and that the Democrats run almost as much risk uh, as the president in his responses to them. I want to end on a bit of an abstract question. You talked about how the uh, goal, the strategy in the Middle East wasn't really working since uh, the end of the World War II. I want to know how do you or what is needed to create a grand strategy in the Middle East that will allow some consistency in the transfer of power when the pendulum shifts, swings from Democrats, a Democratic president to a Republican president without these seemingly conflicting policies in the Middle East supporting one end or the other. How do you formulate that? Uh, how, how do you set that in stone? That's really the most important, the sort of the transcendent question. It's the question that takes you beyond politics. Um, and you're absolutely right to identify that as being a real weakness of American foreign policy. We, it is, you know, we're turning into a banana republic and every president has a different foreign policy. And I said this at the time. This was, by the way, very much a factor in Barack Obama's decision not to make the JCPOA, the Iran deal, a treaty. Now, I think he was fully within his rights. I disagree with many of my colleagues who suggested that he should have been, should have been a treaty. But it should have been a treaty only to serve his own interests, which is to ensure that it lasted beyond his presidency because, of course, Donald Trump said he was going to rip it up, and he did. And this is this is the way banana republics behave. You know, the new leader, new, leader, new policy. Um, and that's not a way to signal to the world any consistency, which is a huge weakness 
for the United States. I, I wrote an article about this um, uh, not long ago uh, in um, in the Atlantic, um, just talking about the importance of morality in foreign policy. You know, when we faced up to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, after the Helsinki Accords in the middle of the 1970s, we elevated the cause of human rights to the top of our agenda. And that didn't mean that we didn't talk to the Soviets about arms control or wheat sales or or or, or um, intermediate nuclear forces. What it meant was every time we talked to them, we also said, hey, what about those dissidents? Hey, what about those labor unions? Hey, what about your treatment of your own people? Hey, now this is something that we need in uh, our approach to the Middle East as well. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure. I'd like to thank Daniel Pletka for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on our website or get them off of Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audioboom, or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>